tonight I want to talk, uh, talk to you guys um, about the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, first off, how many here uh, would say with a show of hands, uh, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that you are a, a blood-bought, born-again Christian? You are a follower of Jesus. I mean, real high, real high. We've got to be proud of that, right? That's something to be proud of. All right. All right. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, Jesus, he lived a perfect life without sin and through temptation. He was still sinless and he died for that very thing that we, we require salvation from on a daily basis. And that's sin. Something that um, through Jesus and only Jesus we're able to overcome. Now, since most of us here um, are Christians, um, we are followers of Jesus, we are to adhere to what the Bible says. Um, who's the one person that we desire to be like? Um, the one person that we should constantly try to emulate? Jesus, that's right, that's right. Because, let's face it, none of us are perfect, none of us, none of us are ever going to be perfect until we reach eternity, um, but Jesus was. Jesus was perfect on his time here on earth. So, with that being said, I just wanted to make sure that I was talking to the right group of people here today. Because to, today is, is geared a lot towards uh, ministry of people in the body of Christ. Um, tonight I want to break down Jesus' ministry a little bit uh, and how he gives us a distinct guide um, for ministry uh, and how it should be done today. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus did what he did the way he did it. I think there's a million different ways that Jesus could have went about doing things because, well, let's face it, he's Jesus. He's God, 100% God, 100% man. He can do anything he wants. But I think there's a certain purpose, a certain reason, the, the way he did things. And I think it was to show us and give, and give us a, an example and guide us in the way that we are to, to do life as well. I would first like to point out that since... Most of us are Christians, and if not all of us in here are Christians. Everyone in this place that is saved has a ministry. Now, don't look at me like I'm crazy, because I'm not saying everybody's called to be a full-time pastor, or a youth pastor, or a kids pastor. That's not what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is that we're all called into ministry. If we, if we look in, 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 the, in the Bible, God's... God's word said, right before Jesus left and ascended back into heaven, um, in Matthew 28, and we can look at that in verses 18, 18 through 20, Jesus came back to the disciples and was with them and visiting with them. And, and one of the last things he told them, we all know, is the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, this is the English Standard Version, um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. End of the age. Tonight I want to look, at a, a, look closely at verse 20 um, real quick. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so to me, what this, what this means is not just the things that Jesus was teaching to the multitude, not just the things that, that we want to pick out and, and 
describe and say, this is part of my life, this is what I need to do. But everything that Jesus was teaching to not only just the disciples, but the multitude, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, everything that he, he was speaking, we should follow. Which brings us back to verse 19, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So given that, the Great Commission is not just for those that are called into full-time ministry. The Great Commission is for every single individual that decides that they want to receive salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, with this Great Commission, I think often we, we read this, uh, commission, this Great Commission and we say, yeah, we're going to go out and make disciples of all nations. And uh, that sounds fantastic, but it sounds unbelievable. It sounds like something that is too far-fetched, too, too big for just one individual to do. Um, and honestly... It is. But God has given us something that enables us to be able to do this. Through the, through the power of His Word and the power of His Holy Spirit, this can be accomplished. And it doesn't take a, a multitude of people to do it. So why is this, this commission, one of the last few words that Jesus spoke while He was here on this earth, why is this the, one of the single most difficult things for us to do? Just being honest. For me even. Why is it so hard for us to do this? Fear? Alright. That's a good one. And that, that's probably one of the most common ones. You know, what does the Bible say about fear? God doesn't give you the spirit of fear, right? But a power of love and a sound mind. So, where does this fear come from? The fear comes from the enemy. It is my thought, in my perspective, that if something comes from the enemy, it's because if we do the opposite of it, it's good. <laughs> it's what God wants us to do. Amen? Um, you know, some might say that they're not called into full-time ministry. They're not pastors. Um, they don't fully understand what the Great Commission's about. Um, you know, what if someone gets mad at you? What if somebody says no? What if somebody rejects you? That's, that's, another, that's a, a fear that people have. That's a fear that I've had for a long time. What, what, what happen, what, I mean, why would they do that? What's going to happen if they do that? Well, basically, they're just going to get mad at you and tell you to go on. They don't want to hear it. No harm, no foul. Right? Um, we think that's persecution, but truly, really, that's nothing. That's nothing. Um, but the Bible says that we're going to be despised because of Jesus. We will be despised because of Jesus. So that shouldn't become as a shock to us if we truly think about it. Um, if we're doing the will of God, we are going to be despised by those who aren't. That's just how it is. Goodness, light and dark cannot mix. Well, how can we go out and disciple unless someone teaches us how to? Uh, unless we go through a course that tells us, this is what you do, A, B, C, and D, so go do it. Um, how can we do that? Well, I kind of doubt um, that the disciples did this. In fact, the Bible explicitly says they didn't. They didn't have a class that they went to for once a month. They didn't have a class they went to for three hours and say, hey, this is how you do that. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are good things. If we're doing something for the kingdom of God, that is great, as, as long as we're doing something. But I think we can look at the life of Jesus, and we can say that Jesus discipled perfectly. He did not make mistakes. He went through life 
He walked life with the disciples in, in great multitudes even and discipled perfectly in a manner that we should as well. Am I saying that we can do all the things that Jesus did? Well, we're sinners. We're not perfect. We will mess up. But the simple fact is that he called us to do this. He called us to go and make disciples. And so tonight I want to look at eight guiding principles um, to true discipleship from the one who performed this feat flawlessly, perfectly. Number one, I want to look at the selection. All right, so Jesus selected his disciples from a great multitude. I'm going to have to get out to my Bible because it didn't transfer over. But uh, Jesus picked disciples from a multitude of people. Um, He picked 12. Now, the Bible doesn't say that there was only 12. The Bible says that there was a multitude, and he picked 12 to become apostles. Okay? Luke 6, 12. (laughs) All right, so here in uh, in Luke, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus is calling the disciples. In these days he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Obviously, verse 13 is indicating that there is more than just twelve disciples here with him. Okay, of, these, of the disciples, he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of... Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Kind of as a footnote here, um, the first thing that Jesus did um, in choosing his disciples, what was the first thing that we read in verse 12? He prayed. That's right. Um, A lot of times we get really, try to get ahead of ourselves, and we don't pray. Uh, We don't pray about things, and a lot of times that's what really leads us to mess up. Given that Jesus was fully God and fully man, I believe that this was a teaching moment. Um, We must first seek God through prayer before we can truly disciple. We must prayerfully consider who God desires for us to disciple. So Jesus, he prayerfully selected his his disciples. He didn't just go willy-nilly about it and say, I think you 12 are good because y'all know the most about the Bible. I mean, no, that is absolutely not true, (laughs) especially on the ones that he he chose. he selected his disciples, revealing immediately the direction his evangelical strategy would take. Uh, Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitude, but is more concerned about men that the multitude would follow. What's remarkable is that Jesus started to gather these men before he ever even organized his ministry, before he even began preaching publicly. Uh, he started recruiting these guys and Jesus had one one objective was the disciple individuals to bear witness to his life and carry on his work after return to the father that was it Jesus came he came to to raise men up become leaders disciple them so that they can go out and do the exact same thing and I don't think that was just for that time I think that's for this time as well Kind of a fun fact about, uh, about how these, some of these men came about to be disciples. 
take Peter, for instance. Uh, John and, and Andrew were the first to be invited uh, to follow him. They didn't... Uh, they were with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching um, at uh, the revival at, at uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan in John 1, 35 through 40. Verse 35 says, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, meaning John and Andrew. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which also means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's, it's really super exciting about what happens next, because it wasn't, you know, we can say all we want that it was Jesus, and that's why people were following him. Whether you believe that or not, this next verse in verse 41 tells us that it wasn't just because it was, it was Jesus. It wasn't just because he walked by and people said, that guy looks cool, I'm going to follow him. Andrew, in verse 41, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Andrew, being the one following Christ already, doesn't say for how long, but I would imagine it's not very long at all, goes and tells his brother about him. Sound like witnessing? Isn't that what we should do? Um, you know, a couple of, couple of disciples with John the Baptist heard the good news. Good news being Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world, is here. This is the same news that we have. John the Baptist didn't say anything that we can't say to. Jesus came and he died for our sins. The Lamb of God that is cleansed of all of our sins. Jesus has to come, and if we choose to accept him, he is faithful to take away our sin. Peter, he wasn't, a, he wasn't included as a disciple at this point. Andrew, who was following Jesus, told Peter about him, and through this we see how true discipleship begins. What was, what was special about these men? Did Jesus pick these men because of their trade, because of who they were in community? Um, were they really important people? Did they have a lot of pull? No. None, I mean, none of them occupied any prominent place in, in the synagogue, so they weren't um, religious scholars. They didn't study the Bible um, in, a, in the way like, as a, uh, somebody of the Levitical background would, somebody who was a Pharisee or a Sadducee or something like that. No formal education in Bible. Nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the first part, they were common laboring men, probably having no professional training beyond the rudimentary things required for their necessary vocation that they're already doing, such so fishermen and things like that, tax collector. Perhaps a few of them came from families of some considerable means, um, such as the sons of Zebedee, but none of them could have been considered wealthy. They had no academic degrees in the arts and philosophies of their day. Like Jesus, their formal education likely consisted only of the synagogue schools. Most of them were raised in the poor section of the country around Galilee. Um, apparently, the only one of the twelve who came from more refined region of Judea was Judas Iscariot. Interesting note. What was so special about the disciples 
wasn't where they were from, what they did, their knowledge. But what was so special about them was that they were honest, they were teachable, and they were willing to confess their need for Jesus. Billy Graham said, One cannot transform a world except as individuals in the world are transformed. And individuals cannot be changed except as they are molded in the hands of the Master. The necessity is apparent not only to select a few helpers, but also to keep the group small enough to be able to work effectively with them. Does this mean we can only minister to one person at a time to be effective? No. Jesus didn't exclude everyone else from following him. He, he still allowed them to follow him. But I think it's important that we look at who he spent the most time with. We have to acknowledge that there was a rapidly diminishing priority given to those outside the 12. You know, we read about the, the, the 70 from Luke 10.1. Um, we, we read about Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And James, the brother of Jesus, we read about all of those, but they weren't the 12 apostles. They were not one of them. They followed Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They spent a little bit of time with Jesus, but nothing near what they did with what he did with the 12. The same rule could be applied in reverse. For within select apostolic groups, Peter, James, and John seemed to enjoy a more special relationship to Jesus than did the other nine. Um, we read all the, in many places um, where Peter, James, and John were the only three accompanying Jesus. Uh, only these privileged few were invited to, to the sick room of, of Jairus' Jairus's daughter in Mark 5.37 and Luke 8.51. They alone go up with Jesus and behold his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9.2 and Matthew 17.1, Luke 9.28. And amid the olive trees of Gethsemane, casting their ominous shadows in the light of, of the full Passover moon, these members of the inner circle waited nearest to their Lord while he prayed. Mark 14.33 and Matthew 26.37 The fact that there is no record of the disciples complaining about the preeminence of the three, though they did murmur about other things, is proof that there were, there were preference is shown in the right spirit and for the right reason, offense need not arise. It is also graphically illustrated a fundamental principle of teaching that other things being equal, the more concentrated the size of the group being taught, the greater the opportunity for effective instruction. Some might say, well, that sounds great. Um, but, you know, this is Jesus you're talking about, and he's fully God, he's fully man. I already mentioned that. Um, true, very true. But I want to take a look at another guy um, that most people in here would probably know the name. His name is Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler used the exact same um, strategy that Jesus used on the disciples back in, the, in his day. Adolf Hitler, um, he was a man that began as, as, as a soldier in the German army, um, although he was an Austrian citizen in World War I. Slowly, he recruited individuals with the same disdain for surrender. He got mad because Germany surrendered. He got mad. He thought they should continue to fight. So he started recruiting men with the same disdain for surrender that he eventually won over thousands, thousands of people who in return recruited others to join in their cause. Where their cause was evil, obviously it was evil. But he still did the exact same thing. He discipled others, if you want to use that word, to follow the things that he believed. We 
we see this in many different occasions. We see it in the Islamic traditions. We see it in um, Buddhism. We, we see it in everything. We see it at Walmart. <laughs> we see this, this thing happening all over the place. But the one place where it was designed and perfected to work through, we don't see it near enough. This method works. Satan will always use a God principle and make a copy riddled with evil for his gain. Moving on, number two. Association. Having called his men, Jesus made a practice of being with them. This was the essence of his training program, just letting his disciples follow him. If you stop and think about it, this is a really simple way of doing it. Jesus had no formal schooling. He had no seminaries, no outline course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled his followers. He simply lived life with them. Jesus, to put it simply, was his own school. He was his own curriculum. The way he lived his life was the thing that the disciples needed to see the most. This is very much contradictory to the formal and almost ritualistic teaching methods of the scribes um, back in the day. That's what they had such a big problem about. One of the things. Um, These religious teachers insisted on their disciples adhering strictly to certain rituals and formulas of knowledge which distinguished them from others. So basically by the things that they did, the things that they wore, the things that they said is what distinguished them between them and other people. Um, The things that they did as being ritual things, not the things that they did on daily life. Whereas Jesus, Jesus has only that his disciples follow him. Knowledge was not communicated by Jesus in terms of laws and and dogmas, but in the living personality of one who walked among them. Knowledge was and is still gained by association before it is understood by explanation. This was best expressed when one of the band, one of the apostles, um, asked, how are we to know the way? Reflecting... Jesus reflecting his frustration as the thought of the Holy Trinity. Jesus replied, I'm the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In John 14, 5 through 6, which was to say that the point in question already was answered. If the disciples would but open their eyes to spiritual reality incarnated in their midst. Andrew, can I have you for a minute? I'm going to demonstrate this. Um, who here has a medical degree? Frankie. Frankie does. All right. So you don't have a medical degree. So most of the disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, didn't have a background in, in, in Bible study. So their, their, their knowledge of the Bible was, was what they learned in synagogue school. I went to college. I have a medical degree. I know anatomy pretty well, um, kinesiology, physiology, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to s- describe to Andrew something that I want him to do, um, and I want to see if he can do it. Because you don't, have a, you don't have a degree in medical, right? All right, it's journalism, journalism right? Okay, all right. So you should be up here instead. Never mind. All right, so Andrew, I want you to flex your hip, flex your knee, dorsiflex your foot, and then I want you to extend your knee, plantar flex, and extend your hip on your left leg only. All right, now I want you to do it 
do it on the left and then do it on the right, then do it on the left and then do it on the right while you're going back to your chair. That's it. All right. So until he put it into action, he had no idea what I was talking about, right? So when he started back to his chair, he thought, oh, hey, that's what that is. That's what I'm supposed to do. Thank you. Thank you, by the way. So the gospel, the same way Andrew was standing here doing what he was doing, he didn't understand what I was talking about. But how it was put into motion, as it was made um, into a life, in the, into something that is functional, something that you do, then he began to understand it. As we heard, la heard last week about Philip and the eunuch, unless we are willing to spend time with a non-believer or a new Christian, we cannot expect them to fully understand the Word of God unless it ex is explained and acted out in front of them. Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. It just can't happen. It is a tool that we can use. It is a tool that we do use, but it is not the main focus. It is not the way that Christ desires for us to do discipleship. Building men and women is not that easy. It requires constant personal attention, much like a father gives to his children. This is something that no organization or class can ever do. Children are not raised by proxy. It's like if you leave your child at home, you give them a list of instructions to do. Are they going to do it? Who has got kids? No, they're not. And those who don't have kids, later on if you do, you'll find out they don't do what you say. The example of Jesus would teach us that it can be done only by persons staying close to those whom they seek to lead. Accountability. Um, accountability is a big thing. Um, let's see. Frankie, question. If you ask Jordan to do something and you're not there, for instance, do the dishes. All right and you're not there, does it happen every time? No. But when you're there, does she do it? Okay, when Dad's there. Okay. All right. Okay. So because there's somebody there, she follows directions. Um, when we don't have accountability, when we're on our own, doing it our own way, trying to figure it out without any help, we have no idea how to do it. And more often than not, we see here people just give up. Um, CJ was talking Sunday about how many salvations we had last year. I think it was like 25, um, 25 baptisms, something like that. It's a, it's a really good amount uh, for today um, for what we think is good. Um, if, if some churches have one or two, that's a good, that's a good year. Uh, so we had 25, fantastic. Um, but how many of them are still here? Um, and I dare ask how many of them are continuing along this journey um, that we're walking through. I don't know. And that's sad. That's sad. And that's not just to you. That's to me, too. I don't know. And that is a sad, that is a sad fact. 
Jesus knew where his disciples were. Jesus knew what they were doing um, because he was discipling them. Number three, concentration. I'm sorry, concentration. <laughs> Consecration. <laughs> A spell check. <laughs> Consecration. Jesus requires obedience. This one seems harder for most um, as this completely goes against the flow of our culture. Most of us do not like to correct others. Uh, that's just common. You know, you correct somebody, you say, oh, you're judging me. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? I live my life how I'm supposed to. I might mess up every now and then, but you know what? Everyone does. Don't judge me. So... We have a hard time with this, but if we are discipling someone, we are obligated through the Word of God to correct in love, not in anger. We are to have patience, but to correct when, corrected, when correction is needed. Jesus expected the men he was with to obey him. They were not required to be smart, but they had to be loyal. This became the distinguishing mark by which they were known. Disciple literally means learner or pupil of a master. You can be a disciple in anything as long as you have a master of it. The disciple didn't take an oath, the disciples didn't take an oath or a creed when they followed Jesus. Their instructions were to just follow with implied to, call, to a call of faith in the person of Christ and obedience to His Word. Discipleship for the apostles seemed easy enough at first, but it soon became apparent that being a disciple of Christ involved more than just a joyful acceptance of the messianic promise. It meant a total surrenderance of one's life to God with absolute submission. Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. What makes a true disciple unique is they stick around even through the tough teachings. As stated before, Jesus had many followers, and many loved being there when he filled their stomachs with the bread and fish that we read about, the feeding of the 5,000. Fantastic, uh, fantastic time for them. But when it came down to the true spiritual quality of the kingdom and the sacrifices necessary to achieving it, many of his followers left. Uh, we see this in uh, John chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. John 6 Verse, verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They even said at one point that, Jesus, this teaching is hard to hear. Why are you telling us this? We like the feel-good doodad teaching. Kingdom of heaven, it's going to be awesome. You know, flowing milk and honey, that kind of thing. Don't tell us we have to do something. Don't tell us we should act a certain way. I like living the way I'm living and still getting to follow you and get salvation. This is the same type of discipleship that we're called to give today. As long as Jesus continues to be the central focus of discipleship, then we cannot waver from the truth of his word. There are those that might say they need a break or have things they need to do before they can be discipled or to be a disciple, but Jesus also, he deals with this too. Obedience is all or nothing. There's no halfway with Jesus. Perhaps this is why Jesus spoke so severely to the scribe who came and said, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus frankly told 
his apparent volunteer for service that it would not be easy. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8, 19 through 20, and we find also Luke 9, 57 through 58. Another disciple wanted to be excused from his immediate obligation of obedience so that he might go and care for his aged father. But Jesus, he would not allow the delay because it would just take time away from what he was trying to do. He knew his time was short. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Go and publish abroad the kingdom of God. There wasn't time for him to go back and bury his father. There wasn't time for him to to worry about the things that have already happened, the things that he can't do anything about. But as a disciple, God has commissioned him to go out and to spread the gospel. Another man indicated that he would follow Jesus, but on his own terms. He wanted to first bid farewell to his family. And some scholars, some theologians, scholars believe that this was, uh, um, perhaps this guy was talking about having a merry good time. Um, lots of beverages to drink and stuff to do like that. Um, but Jesus put him put to him straight. No man having put his hand, hand to the plow and looking back, back is fit for the kingdom. Luke 9 and verse 62. Jesus not, did not have the time nor the desire to scatter himself on those who wanted to make their own terms of discipleship. Hence it was that a would-be disciple was made to count the cost. In Luke 14, 28 says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has the money to complete it. So as, as all of us being Christians here, have we counted the cost of what it is that we signed up for? Have we counted the cost? Um, do we know the sacrifices that we're going to have to take? Discipleship is a sacrifice. It's not easy. It's something that our culture has tried to do away with, which is spending quality time with other people we see it in everywhere we go we see it in the marketplace we see it on tv which by the way is one of those things that keep us from doing that our phones our ipads our our tablets um, um, travel even um, just things have gotten in the way and kept us from really getting involved in other people's lives um, and where all these things are not bad I think the, that the enemy uses them uh, for his gain. Number four, impartation. Jesus was not impartial. He gave his entire self away. He gave his entire life devoted to these disciples. Jesus wanted his followers to obey him, but in recognizing this truth, he realized that his disciples would discover the deeper experience of his spirit. And in receiving his spirit... They would know the love of God for a lost world. That is why he demands. That's why his demands were accepted without argument. The disciples understood that they were not just keeping a law, but were responding to the one who loved them and was willing to give himself for them. Jesus' life was a life of giving. He gave away what the Father had given him. John 15, 15, 17, 4, 8 and 14. He gave them his peace by which he was sustained in, in tribulation. John 16, 33. He gave them his joy in which he la labored amid the suffering and sorrows about him. You can read about that in John 15, 11 and, verse, and chapter 17 and verse 13. 
He gave them the keys to his kingdom against which the powers of hell could never prevail. Matthew 16:19, Luke 12:32. Jesus gave the disciples everything that he had. He gave the whole world everything that he had. He did not withhold anything, not even his own life. It sounds a lot like love, doesn't it? I think if we could take this word impartation, we could just change it and make it love. Because Jesus loved. Jesus loved the entire world. In 1 John 4.8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep commandments to a thousand generations. Love is not love if it is self-contained. That's the thing about love. Love is always giving itself away. In this sense, Jesus brought clearly into focus before his followers just what it meant in the verse John 3.16. For God so loved the world. At no time did Jesus refrain from love. At times the message was hard. At times the discipline seemed tough. But in all of it, Jesus loved his disciples. John 15, 13. Really common verse. People use it. They aren't even Christians. They don't know the word of God. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. It's exactly what Jesus did. For each and every one of us in this place. If you call yourself a Christian, a follower of, of God and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that verse is for you. That verse is for every one of us. Number five, demonstration. Jesus showed them, Jesus showed them how to live. Jesus, Jesus saw to it that his disciples learned his way of living with God and man. He recognized that it was not enough just to get people into his, his spiritual communion. His disciples needed to know how his experience was to be maintained and shared if it was to be perpetuated in evangelism. One of the most powerful things that Jesus portrayed to the disciples was prayer. Surely it was no accident that Jesus often let his disciples see him conversing with the Father. The disciples could see the strength prayer gave to his life. Though they could not fully understand could not understand fully what it was what it was all about they must have realized that this was part of his secret life secret of life it's good to know that jesus did not force this lesson upon them jesus didn't force prayer upon them he never he never said why aren't you praying why don't you do this why aren't you doing that but rather he just kept praying he kept living the life that that they should live until at last the disciples got so hungry that they asked him to teach them what he was doing they wanted what Jesus had. They wanted that relationship with, with God that, that Jesus had. And I, and I like how Jesus does this because he doesn't create his own thing. He just basically lives his life how, how he should. And disciples, when they get hungry enough for it, they ask him about it. So Jesus sees this opportunity um, and not only explain a basic principle of prayer, but then illustrated it in Luke 11, 1 through 4. And then Matthew 6, 9 through 13, which we all know is being the Lord's Prayer. 
Jesus continually emphasized a life of prayer throughout his life here on earth. Jesus showed us how we should live through the scripture. Another aspect of Jesus' life was vividly portrayed to the disciples in the importance of using the Holy Scriptures. This was evident in both maintaining his own personal devotion and in winning others to the way. Often he would take special pains to impress on his followers the meaning of some passages in the Bible, and he never ceased to use the Scriptures in his conversation with them. Altogether, there are at least 66 references to the Old Testament in his dialogues with the disciples. Just the disciples. Including everyone else in the four Gospels, Jesus alluded to the, to the Old Testament nine, more than 90 times, um, speaking with other people. So all, all of this served to show the disciples how they too should know and use the Scriptures in their own life. Jesus practiced what He preached. Um, we must make Scriptures practical as we live our lives. Jesus didn't have to work up teaching situations, but merely took advantage of those situations around him, making practical teaching perfectly realistic. He, he lived what he preached. Um, you know, uh, let's don't lie. Well, Jesus didn't lie. Um, don't steal. Jesus didn't steal. Um, don't get angry at your neighbor. Jesus didn't get angry at his neighbor. All the things that, that, that we see Jesus preaching on, he lived out perfectly. Um, and Jesus taught everything naturally. Um, he often concealed the fact that he even was teaching a method. Because Jesus, he was the method. In some way, it would almost appear we would be unable to proceed without a well-illustrated handbook or multicolored flip chart showing us what to do. The least we might expect is a seminar in soul winning. Yet, strange as it may seem, the disciples never had any of these things now considered so essential for work. All the disciples had to teach them was a teacher who practiced with them what he expected them to learn. And class was always in session with Jesus. There wasn't ever a moment that Jesus wasn't looking to help teach and build up the disciples. The disciples were always there to observe his word and deed. If the particular approach was not clear, all they had to do was ask, and Jesus would explain it to them. For example, after Jesus told the story of the sower um, to a very great multitude, he wasn't even speaking directly to just the disciples. He was speaking to a multitude of people. We see this in Mark 4 um, and, and in Matthew 13 and Luke 8. But afterwards, his disciple asked him what this parable might be. We see that in Luke 8, Mark 4, Matthew 13. Jesus proceeded to explain to them in detail the meaning of the anal analogs using the illustration. In fact, judging from the printed text, he spent three times the amount of time explaining this story to the disciples than he did in giving it in the initial lesson to the crowd. It's pretty interesting. He spent a whole lot more time, three times more time, explaining this parable to the disciples than he did telling it in the first place. When it's when it's all boiled down, the, those of us who are seeking to train people, disciple people, must be prepared to have them follow us, even as we follow Christ. We are the exhibit. They're going to do the things that they hear 
and of the things that they see in us. The same way the disciples followed Christ. If we are to do as Christ has called us to do, then disciple others. They are going to do the things that we do. Hopefully what they see is all good. Um, unfortunately, we're not perfect. So they're going to see the bad. But that shouldn't stop us. It shouldn't deter, deter us from doing what we should do. Peter did it. Paul did it. They weren't flawless in it. But man, we, we read about their impact throughout the Old New Testament. Given time, it is possible through this kind of leadership to impart our way of living to those who are constantly with us. Number six. I'm going to have to hurry. Delegation. Um, Jesus assigned work. I think it's interesting to point out that uh, Jesus was always building his ministry um, for the time he was with the disciples. But the disciples weren't always going out doing ministry. The patience with which Jesus brought this out to his disciples reflects on his consideration for their ability to learn. He was never premature in his insistence on action. In fact, the first invitation wasn't to evangelize the world, but basically to walk life together. Um, Jesus didn't say, hey, come follow me and evangelize the world. He said, come follow me. To put it in a single term, Jesus developed friendship, relationship with these people, with the apostles, with these disciples. His method was to get the disciples into a vital experience with God and to show them how he worked before telling them that they were going to do the same thing. And that's what we should do. That's what we've got to do. As Christians, we have to walk the life that is going to be pleasing to God and that is going to show them the nature of God and then eventually get to the point where they're doing the same thing. That's what true discipleship is. On the other hand, Jesus did not discourage their spontaneous reactions um, to bear witness to their faith, as in fact he seemed delighted that they wanted to bring others to know what they had found. For instance, when Andrew got Peter. Um, also Philip, he found Nathaniel. Matthew invited his friends to the feast in his, in, in his house. And Jesus responded to all these things um, with gladness. He was happy that they were doing it. It wasn't something that, that he'd even told them to do yet. But they went ahead and did it anyway because they, they feel so strongly about what Jesus was doing and about who Jesus was. Initially, witnessing wasn't a verbalized, explicit command for the disciples. In fact, he used his disciples in other ways to help along his work, such as caring, caring for the manual burdens of getting food and arranging accommodations for the group as they followed him. He also let them baptize some people um, who were aroused by his message to the large uh, masses. We see that in John 4, verse 2. Outside of this, however, it was rather startling to observe in the Gospels that these early disciples really didn't do much more than watch Jesus work for a year or more. They learned. They sat with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They didn't do a whole lot of ministering. Um, I mean, it would be like somebody gets saved today and in 10 days we want them to go out and disciple. No, obviously not. We're not look A new Christian today who's never read the Bible is going to have less knowledge than what the, the disciples had at this time because they at least went to synagogue school. So for us to expect a, a new Christian to be able to go out and disciple somebody in a year's time is ridiculous. 
Um, Jesus spent three years with these disciples. Eventually, um, Jesus called the twelve together and sent them out, um, a lot like a mother eagle pushing um, and teaching her young to fly by pushing them out of the nest. Before letting them go, however, Jesus gave them some brief instructions regarding their mission. What he said to them on this occasion is very important to this study because in a sense, he outlined for them explicitly, explicitly what he had been teaching all the time. He first reaffirmed his purpose for their lives. They were to go and preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Luke 9, 1, and Matthew 10, 1, Mark 6, 7. However, their new instructions did emphasize more the immediacy of their task with the announcement that the kingdom of, of heaven was at hand. We see that in Matthew 10, 7. It also spelled out more completely the scope of their authority by telling them not only to heal, but to cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, and raise the dead. Matthew 10.8 He also told them where to go, as well as where not to go. Since kinsmen were, were those most like them in culture and religious background, it is only natural that they start with them. He told them not to go to the Sumerians. He told them to go to their kinsmen. And Jesus told them to expect hardship. The fact that some people will refuse disciples ministry only the fact that some people would refuse the disciples ministry only accentuated Jesus' warning of the treatment they could expect to receive. Let's look at Matthew ten, seventeen and eighteen. It says, Beware of men. This is the warning that uh, Jesus gives the disciples. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's a good parting. Go out and tell the world about me. By the way, you're going to get beaten. You're going to get thrown in prison. Um, you're going to get dragged before governors and kings. But uh, have fun. But nevertheless, Jesus told them not to fear. God would never desert them, and through their witness could though their witness could endanger their lives, the Holy Spirit would enable them to meet emergencies. Matthew ten twenty through twenty one. Find it also interesting that these disciples, when he sent them out, he didn't send them out. Um, Peter, you go to Jerusalem. Um, John, you go to uh, Galilee. And everyone else split up to go somewhere else. They sent them out two by two. I think that's important to note. Uh, a new Christian going out trying and discipling and, and spreading the word of God should not go by themselves. Um, it's always a good idea to have that accountability partner there. Number seven. I'm a hurry. Um, supervision. Supervision. Jesus kept check on them. Jesus made a point to follow up with the disciples following their tours of service to hear the reports and share with them the blessedness of his ministry in doing the same thing. Jesus spent his time with the disciples. He was helping He was helping them understand the reason for some, some previous actions, and he was also preparing them for some of the new experiences they might experience along the way. 
no less patient, yet determined supervision is needed today among those who are seeking to train others for evangelism. We dare not assume that the work will be done merely because we have shown a willing worker how to do it and then sent him or her out with a glowing expectation of results. We must stay vigilant and patient as we disciple those in Christ with love and understanding, making sure we remember how we began and the obstacles we had to overcome. I think that's really important. When we get, back, when we get into discipling, we disciple others. Um, when we come to this church, it's, this is a time of fellowship. This is a time where we get together and we talk about things. This is a time that we can get together and lift each other up. Um, and that's a lot of what, they, what uh, Jesus and his disciples did here. Um, they would come back from their missionary journeys and they would come back and they would tell stories of what, what God had did during, during their, their missionary journeys. The, the sick were healed, the lepers were healed, the demons were cast out, um, people were delivered from demonic possession, all this amazingly great stuff, but also the stuff that didn't work so good. When they came back and, and they said that we tried to cast this demon out of this child and basically he kicked our butt, what happened, God? Why, why couldn't we do this? Well, Jesus said that, that sometimes only things come through prayer and fasting. That we can't just do it because we, we, we have the power. Sometimes we have to work harder. Um, and it's very important to have this, these times, especially with, the, with either the one you're discipling or the one that is discipling you. Um, because they've been there. They've done that. This is a, it's a good thing to have a um, relationship and, and, and rapport that way because otherwise you're on your own. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't send them out and say, go and do this and, and I'll, I'll be here if you need me. It was, a, it was a, set up, a time set that they would meet and that they would discuss these things. Number eight, reproduction. Jesus expected them to make disciples, to reproduce in others what God had put in them. Jesus intended for the disciples to produce his likeness in and through the church being gathered out of the world. Thus, his ministry in the Spirit would be duplicated manyfold by his ministry in the lives of his disciples. Through them and others like them, it would continue to expand in an ever-enlarging circumference until the multitudes might know in a similar way the opportunity they had known with the Master. By this strategy, the conquest of the world was only a matter of time and their faithfulness to his plan. This is where we can see the fruit of discipleship. where so much time and dedication is put into a few, with a strong foundation of scripture, scripture and a heart to live for God, we begin to see the compound multiplication of the gospel into the far reaches of the world. So in conclusion, if we truly grasp the magnitude of eternity in the true heart of God, I believe we couldn't help but disciple people. I believe it would just be something we did automatically. Um, Jesus gives us the guidelines of perfect discipleship. If it is truly our desire to be more of Jesus and less of ourselves, then how we, can we continue to be so complacent in the mission of the gospel? We ask ourselves, how, how come so many are being saved in war-torn countries? How in countries where being a Christian is illegal and you could get killed for just saying the name of Jesus, yet salvation is spread like wildfire? Why is it happening there? You could say it's because of persecution if you want. You could say it's because of this, because of that. You could say it's because the people are so desperate to believe in something good. They don't have anything, so let, why not believe in something better, something of a, of a life after this? You could say all those things, but I don't believe that's what it is. 
I am convinced that it's because one man or one woman received a revelation from God and understood that this life is short, this life is temporary, but eternity is forever for everyone. Someone began to understand that there truly is only one way to the Father, and He has so much more to offer than anything this world can. I believe as the desire to see souls saved and transformed as their own has been, continue to grow and grow through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. A passion was birthed like an earth unquenching fire, and they were unable to contain it. I believe it was at that point that others began to desire the same relationship with the Father. I believe it was then that God started what can only be determined as a vision to see life altered and ultimately transform. First, one person at a time. Then two. Then four. Then eight. Sixteen. Thirty-two. Sixty-four. 168, 256, 562, 1,124. It's compound, compound interest, if you will. Uh, if you've been through Dave Ramsey, you know what that is. It's compounding. And that's just with, us, that with a single person discipling one person and that person going to disciple somebody else. Imagine if we did three. You start out with three, then four. 16, 64, 256, 1,000. 24, 4,096, 16,384, 65,536, 262,144, and finally we get to a million, 1,048,576 people discipled for the cause of Christ. If we did it the way Jesus did, Jesus spent three years with his disciples. In 30 years, over a million people can be discipled, can be raised up to be leaders for the cause of Christ. If one person started to disciple three other people. There's more than one person in here. Um, if every one of us in here got it in our spirit enough to say, God, I'm ready. I want to do what your word commands. Not just the parts that I like, not just the parts that are easy, not just the parts that go along with the culture and make us feel good about ourselves when we do it, but if I truly understood the, the magnitude of eternity, if I understood completely what's going to happen to those people that don't hear your word? What's going to happen? They're going to go to hell. The Bible clearly states it. It, it doesn't matter if... We sit here on our cans and don't do anything. It doesn't matter if we go through life, go to work, come home, come to church twice a week, read our Bible every day. If we don't do anything about it, we don't spread the word, people are going to go to hell. And that's sad, but that's what's going to happen. It all began with one man. This can all begin with one man or one woman who is obedient to serve who can sacrifice a little bit of time, move out of their comfort zone, and pour into a few lives. What an impact it would make. With every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you play some music. If you're in this place and you don't know God, and somehow this message touched you. Somehow this message was, was for you. And, and, and the Holy Spirit work, is working in your heart. And, 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 you, and you know that you need a Savior. 
right now I want you to raise your hand. It's as easy as just saying, Jesus, I need you. Be Lord of my life. Take control. It's as easy as that. There's no perfect prayer. There's no perfect um, saying or commitment or creed. It's a matter of the heart. Anyone at all. I'm going to assume everyone in here is a Christian, and that's fantastic. Um, if you're a new Christian, and if you're, if you're saying, you know, Danny, I don't, I don't know much about the Bible. I, I, I don't feel like I know anywhere near enough to be able to disciple somebody. I need discipleship myself. I want you to pray a prayer that God is going to send you a mentor. God is going to send somebody to challenge you and to hold you accountable to the things of God. Someone that will walk life with you. They will equip you for the future ministry. Somebody who will pour into you love and compassion. Somebody who will not give up on you. Who won't forget about you ten weeks down the road, a month down, a month down the road, four days down the road. They won't forget about you, but it will be continual walking with them in their life. And if you're here and you've been saying, man, this is what I wanted. This is what I've been wanting for such a long time. I want to be able to pour into somebody's life. I want to be able to, to help further somebody's walk with God, to be able to teach them and lead them and guide them, disciple them into, into future things, into future ministries. I want you to pray that God would send that person to you. I want you to pray that God would send you somebody to walk life with. Pray that God would send you someone that would have the willingness to learn have the willingness to grow so that we can see the idea of Jesus' ministry come a complete 360 from what we've been seeing recently and get back to what it should be. Living a life for God. Living a life that is pleasing to God. Trying to be more like Jesus in every way. And trying to help others accomplish the same thing. Let's reboot as a body. And let's begin doing life like Jesus would. Find yourself a place to pray, whether it's at your seat or at these altars. Or whatever, whatever it is that where you're at in this place. Whatever your relationship's like. God wants you to further. God wants you to, to increase. God wants to know you more.
pray for you guys. And uh, I want to challenge you. Uh, if you're at that place that uh, you feel like God is wanting you to, to really pour into somebody's life, I want to challenge you guys to, to pray and seek God daily. Write it down. Write it down and, and just challenge God. See if God doesn't answer that. It's a commitment. But it's a commitment that it has so many more gains than the sacrifice that you give. Father, we love you, God. Father, we are so thankful, God, for the life that you live, God. Father, that you lived a perfect, sinless life, God. And through it, God, we receive salvation, God. But not only that, Father, God, we can receive instruction, God. We can see the life that, that we desire to live ourselves, Father. To be more of you and to be less of ourselves, God. Father, I, I pray, God, that you would raise up a generation, God. Father, that would, that would have a desire to, to lead, God, and to guide people to your word, Father. To lead through the power of your Holy Spirit in your holy scriptures, God. I pray, Lord, that, God, we would stop worrying about the things of, of this culture, of this world, Father, these things that are so temporary, God. That we would focus on that, of things that are eternal, God. Things that will last forever. Souls of your children, God. Lord, I pray, God, Lord, that you would put a fire, God, in, in the hearts of these people, Father, in the heart of this church, Father. I pray, God, that you would instill in us a fire, God, Lord, that, that Ezekiel speaks of, God, that it cannot be extinguished, Father. I pray, God, for that fire, God, that would burn, God, for your people, that would burn for your word, God, and for your Holy Spirit, God, that we may rise up, God, that we may lead people, Father, to your kingdom, God, and not leave it at that. But, Father, we would help disciple God and we would lead so that they can lead somebody else, Father. God, we desire these things, Father. We need these things, Father. God, I ask you to go with us tonight, Father. I pray, God, that you would continue to move on our hearts, Father, continue to move on our minds, Father. Lord, I pray, God, that we would keep you at the focus of all that we do, Lord. Where discipleship is a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, Father, I pray, God, that you would be the main focus, the main center of all of it. God, and may you receive glory and honor. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name.